We're continuing this morning in our Explore God sermon series, and today we're asking the question, is Jesus really God? (laughs) So where to begin? Well, let's begin where the Apostle Paul began his letter to the Romans. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to our New Testament reading, Romans chapter 1. It's right after the book of Acts. Romans starts off with a bang. Might not seem like it to us, but the letter's introduction is loaded beneath the surface with political bombshells. You see, Paul is writing to Christians living in Rome. It was the greatest city of the classical world. It was the heart of the massively impressive Roman Empire. But more than that, It was the home of the most powerful man on earth, the Caesar, or his preferred title, Divi Filius, the Son of God. So if you've ever thought that our politicians were high maintenance, uh, this one was particularly demanding and attention-seeking. Nothing short of worship would suffice. And this kind of homage was expected to be given to all the Caesars. The first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that whenever a new Caesar came to power, ambassadors would be sent out all over the Roman world telling people to repent and believe the gospel, which means good news. It was their way of saying that a new king was on the throne, and that it was time now for everyone, everywhere, to shift all of their allegiance and loyalty to his new rule under this new world order. So you can imagine the outrage, the danger even, if these provocative opening verses of Paul's letter to the Romans happened to fall into the wrong hands. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Jump to verse 3. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And here's the kicker in verse 4. And was declared to be, uh uh-oh, the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Can you see the blood vessels starting to pop out of Caesar's neck? Can you see the men in power starting to sweat a little bit and loosen their neckties at this announcement? This is no formal, polite, Victorian-esque kind of love letter. This is a royal announcement. Fighting words. There's a new king on the throne of the world, God's king, a Jewish king, the man Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason we know this, Paul says, is because this Jesus, once crucified as a common criminal, a despised enemy of the state, he has risen from the dead. 
But of course, this is where it gets weird for us. I mean, how can we really know that this is true? Well, for starters, don't be fooled by the idea that modern science has somehow disproved the resurrection of Jesus. Everybody and their mother knew, just as we know now, that dead people, most of the time, tend to stay dead. It didn't take a Copernicus, a Newton, or an Einstein to figure that one out. Just observable observation of the universal, just universal observation of the universal data. But there have been, over the years, some alternative explanations. And this morning, I'd like to begin by just mentioning the top three. First objection is that Jesus didn't really die. Jesus didn't really die. This might actually be the most popular objection simply because it's held by the largest amount of people. It's the traditional Muslim explanation. But did you know that the Muslim Bible, the Quran, is the only historically acclaimed document that denies that Jesus died on the cross. The Greek historians say he died. The Roman historians say he died. The pagan historians say he died. Even the Jewish historians say that he died. The Quran is the only historical book that says it appears that he died, but he didn't. They say he fainted. And yet this explanation goes against everything we know about the Romans. They were masters of torture. The cross was invented to kill people good. None of this mostly dead stuff that we hear about in The Princess Bride. <laughs> the Romans knew what they were doing. But even if they didn't, I think you would agree with me that it would be difficult to believe that a half-drugged, half-beaten-up Jesus wandering around the city of Jerusalem three days after he was allegedly, allegedly publicly executed, it would have been hard to put that together and say, look, he's overcome death, he's beaten it, he wins. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian apologist. Um, even if you're not a Christian, you should listen to him simply out of pleasure because of his lovely accent. He travels around the world articulating and advocating for the Christian faith, but he also enters into dialogue with other religious leaders. And one of his most recent trips was to Syria, where he was speaking with Sheikh Hussein, who was the leading Shiite cleric, and he's stationed in Damascus. And when they reached this topic, near the end of their discussion, the Sheikh leaned over to Ravi Zacharias and said, you know, Professor, I think the time has come for us in the Islamic world to stop asking if Jesus Christ died and to start asking why. The leading sheikh in the Muslim world said that. Because to deny it would be to go against the whole enterprise of history itself. If you can't trust this, you can't trust any history. Second objection, the second alternative explanation is that the disciples stole the body. 
The disciples stole the body. Now, this one seems at first far more plausible than the first one. In fact, the gospel writer Matthew mentions it in our gospel reading. So keep your place in Romans chapter 1. Flip over for a moment to the first book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, to chapter 28. And look with me again at that second paragraph, starting with verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, of course, someone might say Matthew would say that, wouldn't he? And of course, the answer is yes, he would. But think of what he had to gain and lose by it. You see, denying the resurrection left everybody's worldview intact. The Jews could go on as they had done. The Romans could go on running the world their own way. Philosophers could go on debating their lofty doctrines and ideas. Nobody would need to make any kind of radical readjustments. But if the resurrection of Jesus was true, and if people were now to begin reordering their lives by it, then you can take it to the bank. Those who believed in the resurrection of Jesus were on a collision course with the rest of the world. And of course, that's exactly what happened. With the exception of John, who escaped boiling oil and was exiled, all of Jesus' apostles, Matthew included, would be martyred for preaching Jesus' resurrection. And we're not talking about a more modern, humane kind of execution. Andrew, like Jesus, was crucified. Peter, unlike Jesus, was crucified upside down. James was clubbed and stoned. And Matthew was repeatedly stabbed to death. Now, is it possible that these disciples died for a hoax? I suppose it's technically possible. People can be deceived or deluded. But given the evidence, is it still reasonable to think that? Is it a reasonable position? You're going against evidence in order to believe that. Is it reasonable? Some of you may have seen the movie Silence, based on the book by the Japanese writer Shusaku Endo. Uh, In another one of his books, he writes that if we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. And yet, if we go this route, we may find ourselves making even greater leaps of faith than if we had just believed in the resurrection itself to begin with. So, if we buy the first objection, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, 
If we buy that, we have to return history. If we buy this second objection that the disciples stole the body, then we have to return at least part of our reason because all the evidence is going against it. But now there's a third objection, and that's that Jesus was alive only in spirit. Jesus was alive only in spirit. This one says that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but that his teachings were so powerful, so good, and he had made such an impression on his disciples that all of this stuff, all these memories lived on in their hearts, and that even Jesus' spirit, this sort of ghost-like figure, might have appeared to them in visions when they were caught up in a particular degree of ecstasy. But as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has shown, who's coming to Harrisonburg, by the way, in a few weeks, as he's shown in book after book after book after book, ad nauseum, is that this was not what the word resurrection meant in the ancient world. Resurrection always implied bodily life after death bodily life after death. And, you know, the Jews were odd in this belief. Nobody else in the ancient world believed in bodily resurrection. Homer, for example, thought it was impossible. Plato, who loved the soul more than anything else, couldn't think of anything worse. It was the classic version of Br'er Rabbit. Please don't throw me in the briar patch. Please don't give me my body back. But for Jews, this reality was central to their belief system. And they looked and longed for the day when everyone would experience bodily resurrection. The wicked to judgment and the righteous to share in the rich and unending life of God's kingdom. This, by the way, is what Martha meant in John chapter 11 when she told Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. At the very end of time. She was a good Jew. She was holding on to hope for the final resurrection. But what she couldn't imagine and what nobody ever saw coming was that one man would be resurrected ahead of everyone. You see, the Christian belief is not that some people sometimes get raised from the dead and Jesus just happened to be one of them. No, it's actually that people don't ever get raised from the dead and that something new has happened in and through Jesus that has blown a hole through all our previous observations. So the Christian agrees with the scientist. Dead people really don't get up. And yet, the Christian goes on to say that something new and different has happened in the case of Jesus. And this isn't because there was an odd glitch in the cosmos or that there was something freaky going on about Jesus' biochemistry, but because the God who made the world was doing something beautifully new and way ahead of schedule. He was acting totally 
unexpectedly. Just as he always said he would. So we don't have time to deal with more of the objections from here. Um, I've just touched on the top ones. If you want to hear more, please come and find me after the service. I'd be happy to talk with you. But the truth is, as long as you don't begin with an imposed philosophical bias against the possibility of miracles, the resurrection of Jesus has as much attestation as any other ancient historical event. That's the overwhelming scholarly consensus, both Christian and secular. Unless you begin by saying, I'll never believe in the resurrection of Jesus and there's nothing you can say or do that will convince me otherwise, then you have every reason to believe that it happened. Just like you have every reason to believe that yesterday was Saturday. So what now? Let's suppose that you're open to the possibility that Jesus really did raise from the dead. Rise from the dead. That's a big deal. But does that automatically make him God? Well, no, it doesn't. Because think about it. Suppose I were to die and then rise from the dead. And you were absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that I really did die and that I really did rise from the dead, would that automatically make me God? No, it wouldn't. In fact, it would probably make some of you even more weirded out by me than you were before. <laughs> I'm just going to stay over here from now on. The point is, the resurrection alone, as an isolated event, does not prove that Jesus is God. All it shows, at minimum, is that the world is a really strange place. And that maybe we, as the great, 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 great grandchildren of the Enlightenment, aren't so certain after all about all the laws and rules and givens of what we now call the natural world. So what's so different about Jesus? Like, when the women finally see him, in Matthew 28, verse 9, it says they came up and took hold of his feet, the nastiest part of a man's body, to this day, I might add. They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And this is coming from a group of Jewish women for whom worship of anything, worship of anyone apart from God himself was blasphemy punishable by death. So what is it about Jesus' resurrection, as mesmerizing and breathtaking as it is to begin with, that makes him worthy of this kind of special treatment, of worship, of, what, of the titles that Christians give him as of Lord and God? To see the difference, we have to view Jesus' resurrection as the climax of the largest, grandest story ever told. The true story of the world, Scripture itself. Turn back to Romans chapter 1, and let's look again with this perspective at verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see how Jesus' resurrection finds its meaning as part of an overarching story. Paul is drawing here on the deep riches of Israel's prophecies and psalms. There were many different ideas floating around within first century Judaism about a king who might come to rule over Israel and rescue the nation from foreign oppression. In this case, Israel had lots of enemies, but in this case, the Romans. Like they were back, Israel was back in their homeland after exile, but they were still, to a certain extent, slaves. They were paying taxes. They were playing by the Romans' rules. They were under constant surveillance. And so Paul, guided by what he knows of Jesus, and especially his cross and resurrection, pulls out one strand in particular, that of the coming king, who would be God's son, the successor of King David. Because the thing is, in Jesus, we see the biblical portrait of God come to life. The God we read about in the Old Testament all of a sudden starts to blossom, and we see this picture in full color now. The the loving God rolling up his sleeves, just like we heard in Isaiah 52, to do in person the job that no one else could do. The creator God giving new life. The creator God who works through his created world and supremely through his human creatures. The faithful God dwelling in the midst of his people. The stern and tender God relentlessly opposed to all that destroys and distorts his good creation. And especially human beings but recklessly loving all those in need and distress. This is the Old Testament portrait of God, but it fits Jesus like a glove. Nobody could have imagined that God would take on flesh and come down to his people. They knew, as you heard from the Old Testament readings, that God was somehow going to return to Zion, the place of Israel, But what we know in the New Testament is that as Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, he's fulfilling all these prophecies. He is the incarnate fulfillment of what the Old Testament is talking about. God is coming back to his people. God is coming to Zion, to Jerusalem. And he looks a lot like Jesus. But no one expected that God would take on flesh and die on a Roman cross. But he did, and he beat it, and he did that because he loves his world, and he loves you more than you can possibly imagine, and because he longs to have the relationship with you that he created you for, and because he wants to see the very best parts of you that he knows are there spring up from the ashes as you come to share more and more deeply in his resurrection life. He wants to see you made new. He wants to see your relationships made new. He wants to see the city of Harrisonburg and the whole creation made new. 
And that's perhaps the best news of all that we don't think about enough. It's that in Jesus, all of God's wonderfully good and fatherly plans for the tiny little nation of Israel have blown open, the doors have blown open. And now he gets to be your father too. For you, not against you. Your God, your father, your protector. Jesus is the king of every nation. He's in charge of everything. And if we would allow his resurrection to blow like a fresh breeze through every part of our lives, our thoughts, our imaginations, our work, he promises to bring back to life whatever we thought for sure was dead and done. So let me ask you, what if it's all true? Because the Christ- Christianity doesn't do halvesies. It's either all true or it's not. And if the resurrection is true, if it really happened, then everything is true. Then everything Jesus ever said, did, thought, it's all true. And don't you want it to be true? If you do, then let me encourage you to be an intentional hypocrite. Just own it. Try it on. This is the way we learn things. Just try it on. As you come here, sing the songs. Confess your sins. Pray the prayers. Join a small group. Read the Bible. Really seek Jesus and see what happens. There's a wonderful scene in Oscar Wilde's play, Salome, when Herod hears reports that Jesus of Nazareth has been raising the dead. I do not wish him to do that, says Herod. I forbid him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. This man must be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. And Wilde's next haunting line is the real crunch for us and for Herod. Where is this man? Says Herod. And the courtier says, he's in every place, my Lord, but it's hard to find him. So here we are on the mountain. We're surrounding the resurrected Jesus, some worship, some doubt, but let's be honest, for most of us, worship and doubt kind of happen hand in hand, don't they? Are you open to looking for Jesus? Are you open to really getting to know him? Are you open to worshiping him? Jesus says that if you seek him, if you really seek him, if you keep at it and look for him like you're looking for buried treasure, he says you'll find him. And when you do find him, you'll fall at his feet and you'll worship him as Lord and God and Son of God. Just try it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.